Hello and a very warm welcome to Footprints. You're listening to the June edition with me, Pommy Harmer. This is a monthly podcast to tempt you out and about walking and to take part in Bathscape's Walking Festival this September. In this month's show, we're talking about footwear. What should we wear to keep comfortable? I walk with my friend and radio colleague around St Paul's in Bristol as part of the Bristol Walk Fest. But first, we want to celebrate the Ramblers. With more than 100,000 members, this charity has been at the forefront of ensuring our massive network of paths are kept open and available for us to enjoy right across Britain. I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Young, Chair of the Bath Ramblers, and Keith Weller, who is in charge of footpath maintenance. I started by asking Mary to tell me about the history of the Ramblers. The Ramblers, in its current iteration, was actually founded in January 1935. Prior to that, in 1931, there was a sort of smaller federation of various Ramblers groups from across the country. Prior to, in 1932, the mass Kinder Scout trespass, where about 400 Ramblers walked on Kinder Scout to try and establish a right to walk there. And then following that in January 1935, what was then known as the Ramblers Association was officially created. It's now called, as you say, the Ramblers. And basically it was founded to campaign for walkers' rights and to improve access laws, which at that time, much of the countryside in Britain was out of bounds to walkers. Finally, in 1949, which is like 15 years after the Ramblers was formed, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act became law. And this required all footpaths in England and Wales to be recorded on definitive maps. That's something which is actually still ongoing to this very day, but it is slowly, slowly getting there. At that time, the what's called the right to roam was still not guaranteed across the country until the 2000 Countryside Rights of Way Act was passed. And that did finally secure access for the public to various parts of, sort of mountains, moorland and, and countryside So, you know, we're getting there, but um, there is still an awful lot of work to be done by both the staff that the Ramblers employ, the members and volunteers who are not necessarily Ramblers members, but are interested in registering footpaths and things. And there are a number of, well, quite a lot of smaller local battles, for want of a better word, to protect and further expand the footpath network and over the over the, the years there have been various initiatives to try and encourage more people to to get walking which as I think everybody now acknowledges does improve physical and mental health and of course one of the initiatives which I know Bathscape is involved in is well-being walks to try and get more people going for walks and and getting some sort of exercise Thank you so much. I was astonished when I realised that it was only in 2000 that we had the Countryside Act. I mean, that that's this century. 
the UK has one of the best networks of paths in Northern Europe, does it not? And I, I think in England and Wales, if there's, a, there's something like 140,000 miles of pathways. Now, Keith, you are the man in charge of maintaining these footpaths, not by yourself, of course, but um, tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so um, the local councils are actually responsible for the maintenance of the footpaths, but uh, due to their pressing financial budgets, it's very helpful to them if volunteer teams can do some of the actual work on the ground. There are a number of, a large number of volunteer footpath teams from the Ramblers out all over the country assisting the local authorities. What we do is provide the labour, really, and so they can do a considerable amount more work than they can do just by employing uh, contractors or by employing uh, their own staff. In the Bath area, particularly, I lead the uh, what we call the BRAM team, which is the Bath Ramblers maintenance team. And a large part of the work that we do in our area has been, over the years, converting stiles to gates. This is something which helps. It's much easier to get through a gate than it is to get over a stile. And all of this work uh, has to be done in cooperation with the landowners and the local authorities. Within our local area, we've pretty much completed an awful lot of those stile to gate conversions. And we take on a number of other improvement works, which include steps on particularly slippery slopes. We do quite a bit of major cutting works if a path has become particularly overgrown. That's not quite so prevalent at the moment because more people are out walking the paths and the more people that walk the paths, the more the vegetation is kept down. And if the paths are open, then more people will walk them. We do ditch crossings if uh, sometimes the old boards have rotted or maybe there is not, no way of crossing a ditch. I think that's mostly the scope of largely what we do. But we do do this to what we like to think of as a professional standard. I think it comes under Keith's remit is, is what he calls his shears and secateurs team. Oh, the shears and secateurs team. Tell me about that. Okay, so... Some people want to volunteer, but they perhaps can't come out on the morning that we want, or they can't, don't think they're able to do the heavy work that we do. And so I started up what I call the Shears and Secateurs team, where we can allocate a section of footpath to an individual such that they can get to know their bit of footpath, go and walk it a couple of times a year, and they know where the brambles overgrow or the nettles overgrow, and they can just cut those as and when required. Much of the footpath might be across open fields, for instance, and never need any attention. But just those pinch points around gates, or as I say, a little patch where brambles always seem to grow, can always help to keep the paths clear. Now, in 2015, Ramblers launched Pathwatch, Tell me a little bit about that and whether that's still going. Pathwatch is a, an app which was produced by the Ramblers 
And it means that when you're out in the countryside, if you come across a problem, you can report it through the app. The app will detect your location from your GPS. So you just have to confirm where you are, enter a few little details about what the problem might be. And that will then get directed every fortnight or so to the relevant local authority. Okay. All right. So, Mary, now, I'm really interested in this. The Ramblers have launched a nationwide Don't Lose Your Way campaign to save all the lost paths. Apparently, there are 49,000 miles of lost paths in the UK. There's a deadline of January 2026, I think it is, to get all lost footpaths registered on maps. Now, we've got a, a network of people around the country who are researching these paths. Uh, sometimes they're very, very old paths and they go back to sort of like, you know, um, ordnance survey maps back to 1912 and then compare them with the current ordnance survey maps and ones in between to see where these paths are. There's a lot that have obviously been built over over time, so are, are no longer even recognisable as a footpath. But there are an awful lot, as you say, 49,000 miles have been identified. And the next step really is to identify which of those are viable to take forward as a proper case to get them registered as a footpath by the by the deadline. Hopefully they, the government will agree to extend the deadline because obviously there's going to be a lot of work involved. Can anyone who isn't a member get involved? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the same with with most of what we do like Keith has mentioned the pathwatch we would welcome you know non-members to get involved in that in fact there are a lot of non-members who um, who have picked this up and what does membership bring for anyone who's thinking about joining the ramblers well firstly and mainly the opportunity to walk um, usually but not always in the countryside with a group of like-minded people in normal times, you know, it can be sort of like up to 20 people locally on a Sunday morning, go for a walk, usually out in the countryside. They're with people that they get to know over the years. So it's a it's a social event as well as a as a you know be good for you event. The walk leaders have always done detailed research on any route. And so you go out on a walk confident that. You're not going to get lost because the leader's done all the research and you don't have to sort of like worry about anything except following the leader. Contributions of members' membership help all the campaigns and all the other costs involved in keeping the footpaths open. Where's your favourite walk, Keith? Um, I would say that sort of within the Bathscape area, I always enjoy walking down through the Lambrook Valley, which is Woolley, Chalcombe, language sort of area, Swainswick. But going up onto Salisbury Hill is wonderful. You get fabulous views across the city. Everywhere around Bath, nice to walk, of course. Thank you both so much for joining us today and talking about not only the wonderful campaigning history of the Ramblers, but also what you're doing to make it easier for all of us to be able to walk around the beautiful English countryside. Thank you.
Hello again, Lucy. How are you doing? Hello. Very well, thank you. You? It's time for our wise words from Walking Women. And this week, it's all about getting the right footwear. And anyone who heard the last podcast will have heard the poor young man who completed the 20-mile circuit of Bath with blisters. So getting the right footwear is critical to having a good walk. So let's get into it. The first question for me is, do I buy fabric or leather for my boots? What's your preference? I've had both. And at the moment, I've got, I think, what you would call a combination of the two, which is Nubuck, which sounds like they're a pair of fashion boots, but it's not quite as heavy as leather, but it's not synthetic. And as the woman in the shop pointed out to me, it all comes from hides and animals are waterproof. Obviously, people of a vegan persuasion would probably go for synthetics anyway. So it's, it's that balance, isn't it, between waterproof, heaviness, stiffness, support, flexibility and they're all slightly different and as always as we always say in our wise words it's um part personal preference but also I think it does depend on what sort of walking you're doing doesn't it yes I think so and I've had both and what I would say about fabric is they're nice and light but they're not as durable they don't last as long and they're definitely harder to clean when you're walking in mud people potentially because they look quite rugged potentially underestimate how much you have to look after them i did trash a pair of boots by not cleaning them properly and mud and particularly if you're walking through cow dung of any sort will just eat away at the stitching and at the leather and they'll, and they'll fall apart i think whatever they're made of wash them off at the end of your walk particularly when it's been muddy Yeah, it's important to be in a routine, isn't it? Always clean your boots when you get home. The other tip is to not dry them in front of a radiator or or in the sun. Just let them dry naturally so that that adds to their protection. And wax them every month is what I was told. For leather ones. For leather ones, yeah. If you're mountaineering, then probably a proper really thick leather with a very, very stiff sole and high ankle and all the rest of it. Probably if you're walking the hills around Bath, you can get away with something much lighter weight and more more flexible and even trail shoes, which are light trainers, but a bit a bit more robust. The sock is also really, really, really important. And I find um, really thickish socks that are tight fitting also. You don't want your socks moving around or scratchy socks. I don't know if you've experienced scratchy socks. Oh, yes. Scratchy socks are dreadful. They do need to be, in my opinion, proper walking socks yeah. so have a little bit of cushioning yeah. at various yeah, points definitely I think if you don't know what you like if you haven't got a model that you really that really works well for you then go to a specialist store and get a specialist fitting from somebody who knows yeah. what they're doing and can feel your toes and where they are and and can ask you questions about how, how the fit is and can make you walk up and down slopes and you know yeah really try them out and try out quite a few pairs before you decide because I think until you try out different pairs you don't know what feels good and what doesn't feel good and you can tell a lot by the fitting and when you try it on in the shop whether it moves around the worst blisters I've ever had is from walking boots that were slightly too big because your foot just moves around in them it's not because they're too small and being crushed it's it's that movement now socks Lucy Are you a one pair, two pair or even three pair woman? I am very much a one pair of, as you say, padded socks, which are very tight around the ankle. So they don't move anywhere. 
I don't wear two socks, I wear one, but I do know people who do and swear by it. I even know one person who wears three. I've never quite understood the two sock thing, but I know that, for again, it depends. Yeah, it depends what you're used to, doesn't it? But to me, my feet would just get boiling hot and I'd get blisters because they'd swell up, I think. Now that I just wear these pair, when I have to wear other pairs, I'm a bit grumpy about it, but I would do that for a shorter walk if they're in the wash, if my favourite ones are. Yes, we all have our favourite socks. I think once you've found your favourite socks, you really don't want anything to happen to them, do you? No. Thank you, Lucy. But before you go, tell us what's coming up for our listeners. We now have our basket walks, which are regular. They're slightly more than monthly because we we put on walks um, that we think will be of interest at the right time of year. And the one would be quite good to mention coming up on the 4th of July is all about Haile Selassie's time in Bath. So he was in exile here and we've got a walking tour talking about his and his family's time when they were here and places they visited and what they did. So that's on the events page of our website if people want to book on that. So a free walk on Sunday the 4th of July. Thank you so much, Lucy. What are we doing next month? Ooh, I know what we're doing next month. Is it long distance walking? It is long distance walking. (laughs) And I'm going to be telling you all about a long distance walk that I will have completed. Excellent. I look forward to it. For our walk this month, I headed over to Bristol to have a look at one of the walks arranged for the Bristol Walk Fest, which takes place every year throughout the month of May. But because of Covid, many of the walks this year were arranged through the Go Jauntly app, which we talked about on an earlier podcast. This is a free community-based nature walking app, which features local walks created by people who love and know them, and you can download it onto your phone. This one that we're going on today is a Black History Tour of St Paul's and I met up with friend and ex-Bath resident Angel Mel who kindly agreed to accompany me. The app takes you along the walk with plenty of pictures to show you where you should be. This is an urban walk so you will hear plenty of traffic. Here I am in this beautiful sunny day with Angel Mel and we're going on the Black History Tour of Montpellier and St Paul's. We sure are. I'm really looking forward to learning more history about the local area. This walk is part of Bristol's Walk Fest. Okay, this is our first stop. Where are we? We are outside the Starring Garter in the park, looking at all the beautiful murals that we can see. There's a lot of memories held for me in this space. I think this place means a lot to awful lot of people. Tell us what you do. I for a living, so I'm a DJ and I'm a radio presenter, so these areas have always been very special to me. I feel like I've been hanging around here in various bits, um, sort of this area of Montpellier and St Paul's and Easton. It's all my life, really. Even though I grew up in Bath, I've known these areas really, really well, and so it's nice to be back here huge performance a few years ago about three years ago from Dave Chappelle who is American comedian very very well known and loved and a huge performance hip-hop performance right here 
in this space and I was in a wedding in Woolley. We've got some information here about the Star and Garter, which says it's one of the first pubs in the area serving the African and Caribbean community. It became a staple for Caribbean music. This landmark pub inspired careers of multiple famous DJs, including DJ Derek, Daddy G from Massive Attack, just to name a few. By the M32, under by the underpass, where we've reached our first iconic image of the Seven Saints. This is Laurel Roy Hackett. He co-founded the Commonwealth Coordinated Committee, the CCC. And it's a beautiful piece that was painted by artist Michelle Curtis and is a part of the Seven Saints project, which celebrates iconic black Britons who had an impact on the city. And we're going to see more of these murals. What do you think the murals mean to the people who live around here? I think to see someone that reflects the culture and the heritage and the story of the people that came before us that endured so much prejudice, so much discrimination, but overcome, like this piece with Roy and the bus boycott, which I'll mention a bit more later on, that these people like Roy Hackett forge the way for the next generations to come so that we can all live together in you know relative like harmony that we can work alongside each other or date outside of our races and all those sorts of things yeah it means a lot and to see (laughs) it just proves the point where we are (laughs) yeah just to see people of color big Just going back to Roy Hackett, so he co-founded the Commonwealth Coordinated Committee. At the time, the CCC helped challenge racist policies enacted by local authorities. They also helped organise the Bristol bus boycott to combat the racist hiring practices of the former Bristol Omnibus Company in 1963. Thank you, Roy. So we're now at the bottom of Badminton Road, opposite Barbara Detterings mural and again another beautiful piece by Michelle Curtis and it's just got a a little quote on here it says I saw a group of black people doing something for themselves and I wanted to be part of that and it's Barbara Dettering so she was known for being dedicating over 50 years to community service in this area so looking after the needs of the local people in the local West Indian community so we just walked across St Agnes Park from Barbara Dettering, past the fabulous Felix Road Adventure Playground. So here we are at Speedy Bird Cafe. Yes, and this is the third mural portraying Clifford Drummond, who was very involved in numerous local community organisations. Also, he co-founded Bristol's first black-owned travel agency. It's gorgeous, it's really bright and exotic and it just gives you a sense of the diversity in the community because you've got a Sikh gentleman there, you've got a lady wearing a sari with, I think she's got um, like a a bindi. So there's a real mixed black people in, in the community as well. Just really showed how diverse it was at the time. Carmen Beckford, MBE. Another member of the CCC, which we mentioned earlier, and the first race relations officer in Bristol. 
right. And I think now we're going back up to St Paul Street again because we're going to find a very infamous club that everybody, well, m- many people in the know used to go out and shake their tail feather to back in the day. So we need to look out for a blue plaque. Oh, I see one. <laughs> Just like that, we see a blue plaque. And this is home of the infamous, the notorious Bamboo Club from 1966 to 1977. The home of ska, reggae and blue beats created by Tony and Alel Bullimore. And it says Bob Marley, Benny King, Desmond Decker, Percy Sledge and Jamie Cliff all played here. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Because the Bamboo Club, for those of you that don't know, was yet again another club that was predominantly for the black and Afro-Caribbean community, people of colour who couldn't go out in town. They weren't allowed to go out in pubs and bars in town. So this is where they came, this is where they partied into the early hours. I would have loved it. Now, I feel like on a good day, you could still feel the vibrations of all the parties, all the singing, all the drinking, all the memories are still locked into the bricks and the wall. Guan. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this made me laugh. So outside Wilder Street, and there is another just really powerful, just and it's pristine picture of Captain Jamaica by BS51, I believe the artist is called. Very, very proud of this piece. And this is the one that many people stand outside and have their picture taken and stuff because it's the Jamaican flag with the black superhero just looking like he's ready to kick some serious butt. <laughs> and he's saying, Go on, BS 51. <laughs> so we're now on Campbell Street, moving on to the next of the saints. This is Dolores Princess Campbell, the official first lady of the CCC. She co founded the United Housing Association and was the Bristol City Council's ambassador for fostering. She personally fostered approximately 30 children. Wow! And the mural's gorgeous. I wonder if they actually got little kids to draw. The, you know, it's, it's just my favourite. I love drawings, my little... When they're about six, and the hands and legs look a bit funny, but she just looks like a really jolly, happy lady. She's got a gold tooth. Are these poinsettias, maybe? These red flowers? Getting these red, vibrant flowers that surround her? So we're outside the popular spot that used to be called the Black and White Cafe back in the 80s and 90s and prior to that. Now, this cafe was known, again, as another safe space for the black community to come, to get something to eat, to play dominoes, to play cards, just to hang out, play pinball machine. But it was subject to raids by the police all the time, all the time. And it all came to a head on the 2nd of April, 1980, when there was a raid on the Black and White Cafe sparked the Simples Uprising. Tension between the local black youths and the Bristol police had been rising for years due to police discrimination and harassment, and that was known then as the Sus Laws. So basically stopping and searching people just because they looked a little bit suspect. 
The tension boiled over into a riot during which 130 people were arrested and 25 were taken to hospital. Despite the numerous requests by local community, there was never a public inquiry. There you go. Now it's a peaceful house. But again, like the Bamboo Club, if these walls could talk, what would they say? Okay, so we've got a bit about the carnival here. We stood outside an amazing mural by Inky. It's vibrant, it's bright, it's colourful. 50 years of St Paul's Carnival, that is what it marked in 2018. But I remember being on the Ujima stage and the light was incredible. It's the, the light that you get sometimes in the autumn and that sometimes you get in the spring. Do you know what I mean? It's a really, I don't know what causes it, but it was, there was just something really special about it. The atmosphere was fantastic, perhaps because we hadn't had one for a while. Maybe that's what it was as well. But this particular piece by Inky really sets the tone for the, you know, the feel of what carnival is. And I've got some information here. So the annual carnival, which started in 1968, is a multicultural festival with dancers, music, food and vibrant costumes. There's a beautiful blue mural. I think this one's been here for quite a while and it says, welcome to St Paul's, the seven saints of St Paul's, a celebration of the founders of the 1968 St Paul's Carnival and the Honourable Owen Henry. So who was Owen Henry? In 1979, he was awarded the Order of Merit by the Jamaican Prime Minister. You know, I think this is what these images show is collective conscience in action. Rather than just thinking about we need to do something and talking about it, these people actually did it and made a real difference to the lives of the people around them for generations to come. Is it the final saint? It is the final saint, mural Audley Evans, who also campaigned in the Bristol bus boycott. He was an active member of the CCC and he helped found the Simples Carnival. So it's more simpler drawing, I think, for Norris. It's just a huge picture of him, isn't it? And his smiling, glittery face. So we've reached the end of our tour. How has it been for you, Angel Mel? It's been wonderful, not only learning more about the Seven Saints, but actually, for me, Pommy, going down memory lane and St Paul's has a lot of really happy memories for me. And it is a joyous place. There's so much music, there's so much colour, so much vibrancy in every single brick and stone of this area. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. Very privileged to live here, actually. That's my final thought. What a lovely way to end. Thank you so much for touring St Paul's with me. My pleasure, anytime. That's it for this episode of Footprints. Don't forget you can sign up for the Haile Selassie free walk on Sunday, July the 4th on the Bathscape website. And you can find out more about Bath Ramblers by visiting bathramblers.org.uk. 
If you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a review and subscribe through your favourite podcast provider. We'd really love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bathscape.co.uk and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. Thanks so much for listening and see you next month.